Good evening. You are listening to the Yena podcast. Today is Tuesday, the 5th of July, 2022. <laughs> and joining me tonight, uh, I'm Craig. We have uh, Bronwyn. Hello. And Mark. Hey, how's it going? Not bad. Well, apart yeah. from forgetting which month it is, I suppose. <laughs> it's is just it, ticked is it- over. Whose turn is it to make the obligatory, oh, my God, we're almost halfway through the year, or actually, we're more than halfway through the year now. It's almost Christmas time (laughs) in five months. Are you ready? No. No, no. Can we talk about the weather? I'm much more comfortable with that. (laughs) It certainly has rained a lot here today. No, I was joking about talking about (laughs) the weather. Don't actually do it. (laughs) All right. Well, we can cut that bit out. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, leave it in, leave it in, it's fine <laughs> So, uh, since we last recorded There's been a fairly momentous decision uh, In the United States Made by the Supreme Court uh, Regarding the Roe v. Wade uh, case And overturning it mm-hmm. And um, how do we feel about this? Not good No, um, yeah Unsurprised but disappointed. Yeah, well, it was well signaled with that in, unintentionally with the with the leak, um, but yeah, it's certainly been uh, a shock uh, for for many people um, now that it's actually been confirmed. Yeah, so that was a leaked draft from a couple of months ago, a draft decision that suggested that it was going to be what six to three, strongly along uh, the the political lines. The uh, conservative versus the liberal uh, judges on the uh, Supreme Court. And then I think when you've um, in the aftermath of it, I mean, you have Clarence Thomas sort of, you know, putting thoughts out there that gay marriage, access to contraception, um, all those things are now also um, up on the chopping block, which is, I think, quite terrifying for a lot of people in the U.S. right now. It is worrying. Um, One thing we've been talking about at Skeptics in the Pub on and off when it comes to talking about American politics and the Supreme Court is the idea that actually um, nine is not a fixed number in American law for the number of Supreme Court judges. And um, there are ways that you can increase that number. And I believe it has been done before as well. So, yeah, the, the number nine is sort of by convention. Um, and and I, know, I know that they are sort of considering um, perhaps putting more judges on there to address the imbalance, but they are, I think the perception is that if and when the Republicans get back in, then they would essentially retaliate and just mm. stack it in the opposite direction again and you you end up with <laughs> potentially dozens of judges on the fifty seven Supreme, Supreme Court judges. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> they're, 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 they're and they're there for life. Well an interesting thing about abortion services and the the provision of abortion in American in American politics is something called the um, Mexico City policy, or you may know it as the global gag rule. Since Roe versus Wade was um, enacted in 1973, um, American foreign aid always had something called the Helms Amendment that was tacked on, which prevented, um, you know, if you were going to get, um, what would say, um, U.S. foreign assistance, you cannot provide abortion services. If you're getting American money and for so many countries in you know, Africa and elsewhere around the world, American foreign aid money is pre- the predominant form is is yeah, the predominant form of funding. 
1985, the Reagan administration broadened that um, with, again, the Mexico City policy, which requires all non-governmental organizations or NGOs to certify that they will not provide or actively promote abortion as a method of family planning as a, with even their non-U.S. funds as a condition of receiving U.S. funds. So what's happened since 1985 is that every Republican president has either kept that law in place. So that was Reagan and George Bush Sr. Then it got rescinded with um, Bill Clinton, got put back in place by um, George Bush Jr., then rescinded by Barack Obama, and then put back in place with Trump. Now, both Bush and Trump expanded that policy. So particularly with Trump, it was no longer NGOs providing family planning services. It was any NGO on any project receiving any American money whatsoever. So if you have an arm of your, of your project dealing with water or HIV, if another arm is providing abortion services, that's it. You have no money for clean water. Um, now, currently, as of 2021, Joe Biden rescinded the Mexico City policy so there are now countries that ha- probably have less restriction to abortion services than America itself. <laughs> However, we can't, even though sort of our pulp culture dialogue about America is that's a massive dumpster fire in terms of politics and the economy, America is still a major player for a lot of countries. And what happens there just influences what happens in other countries in terms of their own abortion policies and can even stop dead things that are going trying to go through other governments. We might well be criticised for say if, for sort of worrying about what's happening in the US and that 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 is not our own country, but there is a lot of influence mm-hmm. um, in terms of what is happening in the US is certainly making its way over here, and there are many conservative groups who uh, seem to be quite pleased with the idea of um, of banning abortion. And it's influ- and it's influential. I think for about 13 years, Australia had its own sort of funding ban. And that really just sort of fall- flies in the face of the global commitments like the Millennial Development Goals, which try to improve healthcare across the world for women and children and everyone. And yet you have Australia saying, yeah, no money for you guys. And mm-hmm. the interesting thing is that that ban came in place because a senator, um, they wanted a-, a senator to approve the partial sale of Telstra telecommunications. Okay, that sounds like an interesting story. What's that got to do with abortion? Yeah. Or is that it was just a bargaining chip? A bargaining chip, yeah. Yeah. But even no. though that even though that same ban got repealed in 2009 in Australia, it's still coming back up and there's still many conservative and right-wing and religious groups that are still trying to get that fun, that sort of ban or a Trump-style ban in fact back in place. So um, another point that's that's come up in recent conversations is, I mean, this change basically is that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. It's not that abortion has been banned in the states, Hmm. is that women no longer federally have the right to an abortion, that now states get to decide what their abortion policy is, what their laws are regarding abortion. But one thing I didn't realize until, again, it came up at a skeptics in the pub, um, somebody mentioned 
mention that um, I think it was maybe 13 states had trigger laws in place. So there were laws yeah. that mm-hmm. weren't enacted, but they were they were basically sitting there ready to be put into force as soon as they were legally able to. So everything mm-hmm. was in place so that as soon as this decision was made, they could, without having to go through their own um, state court, they could immediately enact an abortion ban in those states. And again, a little bit surprised that America did that, um, but not too surprised given just how conservative some of the states can be over there. Um, and it, it just seems like a really bad way of doing things. But if, and, 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 it's, and it's going to be really interesting to see the long term impacts of this. And the president, this sets that allows states to determine abortion law. There are some pundits who are speculating that. This can be sort of the backdoor and the backdoor entrance for states to question election results. Just backing up, there are some states that, despite the overturning of Roe versus Wade, um, that are blocking those trigger laws from coming into effect. So I think Louisiana might be one of the states. So there are multiple states that are trying to say, stop, we need to discuss this because we are seeing um you know, we are now already hearing tales of young children who've been raped can't access an abortion. Um, we're hearing of women who have had, you know, who are having miscarriages, need abortion-like services, can't access them. Ironically, it's also affecting people who are trying to get pregnant. So within in vitro fertilization and fertility services, in order to success, have a successful pregnancy, miscarriage, abortion is part of that process, um, particularly if you need to have multiple embryos Doctors will try to increase your chances. So you have multiple um, eggs fertilized. And then depending on how many take, you may have to choose to selectively reduce um, how many children that you give birth to. So where does uh, your, you know, a a full out ban or your trigger law states uh, stand on that? It it would seem that they don't care because they're, it would seem that they're ideologically driven to, and it seems to be mostly religious objection to um, abortion and thinking that, as you've seen, abortion is akin to murder and life supposedly begins at conception, which, which of course it does. But does, does that mean that um, it should then be uh, protected from uh, from uh, conception onwards mm-hmm. uh, as, as equivalent to a born human <laughs> being? And, and when you consider that there's money, you know, you do if you do have fertilized eggs, sometimes you are you do have to pay for that storage. And of course, if you're just if the doctor is fertilizing you know, these eggs, sometimes they don't use all of them. Sometimes they discard them because it's a, it's a service. There's, you only have so many, so much space in the freezer. I believe that's been an issue in some states where you can't destroy them. Right. And so there are some states where they just put more and more freezing storage in place to hold on to this increasing number of eggs that they ethically can't do anything with. But it's also an issue in states where, again, as Craig says, you know, life begins at fertilization. Yeah. And I, I guess that is an oversimplification. I'm I'm assuming if we had a biologist um, on the podcast, they'd tell us that it's a lot more complex than that. That's yeah. not what gynecologists and fertility specialists are saying. They're saying this is that's actually the specific issue. But but it all it does come down to the, the, the value that you then place upon that that fertilized egg. Uh, I wrote about this in the newsletter and um did get a little bit of pushback from somebody who objected to me referring to people with uteruses rather than women um, in the newsletter. And so this kind of got into the territory of 
criticism that we were harming women by not strongly saying that this was an issue for women rather than people who could get pregnant. And of course, the the, re, the technical reason for people who could get pregnant is that it's not just people who identify as women who have uteruses, that there are other people who can have uteruses as well and are capable of getting pregnant. But I'm probably straying well outside my area of expertise here. I, I know that we have a, uh, a midwife here, so um, <laughs> perhaps you could... could uh, Make some comment on this. I'll try my best. Um, I mean, we have a wonderful diversity in our world of, you know, both, you know, gender diversity, how we identify, how people can choose to identify themselves and the relationships that we have. It's really easy to silo, you know, if we see a transgender man, who, who, who are they with? Who is a relationship or are they even in a relationship? So, you know, we think a oh, transgender man's going to be with another transgender man. Not always the case. Um, And as well as if they're not with anyone in particular, if they are asexual, they may still want to be a parent. Maybe they haven't had the 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 bottom surgery. Um, Maybe there's still there's still an opportunity that their uterus is in place. They're still fertile. And many do choose to have to become pregnant, go through fertility treatments, have their have their children, build their family. And if they choose to proceed further with transitioning, they do. And sometimes they don't. Mm. So that means, you know, again, we have this big, you know, lots of people can become pregnant that not necessarily female or identify as women. And it's not of our business. And we should have no jurisdiction in terms of telling someone, well, yes, you're, you identify as a man, but you're a woman. We don't have that right to say that to somebody. Mm. Right, right. And, and I guess in your experience as a midwife, then you, I guess, must come across these situations of when babies are born. What what is the procedure these days for identifying the sex? The potential for ambiguity. So, in, in when the, the baby in, is born, in in the event that there are ambiguous uh, genitals, there are tests that are done. Right. So okay. these days, is that a genetic test? I think so. It's been. I, I don't. We. Ha- I haven't had that um, case happen within my practice, but um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, because uh, from, from the the statistics I understand, they're around about two percent of two percent of births are ambiguous. But I mean, look, when we're talking about gender and gender identity, it's not about ambiguous genitalia. You know, there is a, there is a psychological aspect of it as well. Even if you sure. have non-ambiguous genitalia, so indeed, I mean, I think indeed. we should stick to that issue right here, other than. Right, because I mean, New Zealand has had a very controversial um, contribution to the treatment of intersex individuals, being John Money, who was a psychologist um, who trained in, I think, Otago, and then made his sort of name with a very controversial um, treatment that he did on a young man in the USA in the seventies and eighties. Oh, okay, sounds ghastly. Yeah, very Um, ghastly. I, I guess the point I was trying to drive at is that. A lot of people who are what they like to call themselves gender critical want to say that the gender must match up with your sex you're assigned at birth and that sex and and gender are the same thing, um, which is obviously not the case. I came across a a very good resource um, called The Gender Bread Person. Yes. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, Yeah. I've seen The Gender Bread. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't. Can you explain it to me and our audience? 
you, you know what a gingerbread man or person is. Yes. Uh, so this is the genderbred person. So it's a, it's an image which sort of gives a good a good overview of the ideas around gender identity and expression and sex and you sort of got these um, sliders that say okay your gender identity is how much you feel like a woman or how much you feel like a man and then your uh, gender expression is whether you are typically feminine or masculine or, or a combination of the two and then there's the things like sexual orientation are you sexually attracted to women or to uh, feminine people or um, or to men and then are you romantically attracted to women or men or females or and and those two cannot line up. So that, that that's an interesting thing in itself, isn't it? That, that you can be sexually attracted to one uh, gender and then uh, romantically attracted to to another. Yeah, and so it's actually it, it's well worth actually having a look at that uh, diagram, and it it makes you think about uh, these sorts of issues. Yeah, I guess historically we've made these convenient boxes that you know we can put most people into, right? And uh, and back historically, before we started listening to people that didn't fit in these boxes, they either fitted in the boxes or they probably had to pretend that they did. And there was mm. no other choice. And we're finally getting to the point as a society around the world where we understand that actually these things are a continuum and there are a range of ways that people feel about, you know, as you say, who they're attracted to, who they are themselves. Um, and it's not for us to try and tell them that that way of being is not a valid way of being. Yeah. So just coming back to this email. So this person was straying into the territory of um, talking about a prominent woman in the UK who'd been driven into hiding and had their careers ruined uh, and being cancelled because they dared to defend the use of the word woman as one definition of an adult female with female productive organs. I kind, kind of, of had, I thought it was timely that we received that particular email because the same day The Guardian had an article about how it was, what, the 2025th anniversary of the release of the first Harry Potter book. And, of course, J.K. Rowling has garnered a lot of um, controversy regarding her stances about transgender women so much so that it's kind it's really significantly damaged her brand so i thought it was oh someone's been someone's been reading the news today yeah although, although that issue has been going on for quite some time isn't it but yes yeah. I, th I think one of the things that i'm reminded of in an interesting way i think is um is the gay marriage debate and how it's happened over here with the the idea that's come from religious groups who tried to argue at the time when we were looking at legalizing gay marriage that actually marriage was a religious institution. And I get that historically they they can lay claim to it that, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago, marriage would have been a religious thing more than a legal thing. But since then, it has become a legal thing and it, it confers a lot of legal rights. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that there was a conflation of with religious groups of then saying, well, religious marriage is ours, therefore all marriage is ours. And I, I think it's kind of similar to this conflating of sex and gender, that basically the idea of gender and, you know, who you feel you are and how you feel as a person is not 
the same as sex. But I think a lot of people want to treat it like it is the same thing as sex. They want to reduce it to that. And I don't think that's a fair reading of what's going on here. I think that the two are separated to an extent. And, and we're seeing that, you know, with the the rise in the number of people who are able to come out and be honest about how they feel their gender is when it doesn't align with their sexual characteristics. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing. And I, I don't think we should be trying to force these two things to be just the same thing. Me personally, I, I don't really get why people feel threatened by the way somebody chooses to express themselves. Perhaps I'm just being naive. I, I, I think I think it is. It's, I think it's a simple fear. And if you can take out the T in LGBTQIA plus Takatabui, as we've also had other people complain to us about that usage, it makes it much easier to weasel your way into people's hearts and minds to diminish and take away rights from the from the rest of the community. So it is a the, gateway. The other day, I watched a documentary from Ben Shapiro of the Daily Wire. I'm sure many listeners will know who Ben Shapiro is. Um, and you know, I'm a sucker for punishment. I I like to put myself through hell. This documentary was not good, but like a lot of the time with this <clears throat> issue the gender issue, there were the same tropes. Now, thankfully, the bathroom issue didn't really come up, but the sports issue did, and it came up heavily. It felt like a good third of the movie pivoted around the idea of what it's like for sports women um, when they have transgender women who who join in. And to me, honestly, I, I just had no interest in this. I'm, I'm famously a person that really doesn't care about sports, and so it's like... It's just sports. What the hell? Why Why would that be such a big reason to say that these people can't be women because, you know, they want to partake in a sport? It just felt like, well, maybe just scrap all sports then. Maybe we can all learn to be astronomers instead of sports people and actually do something good for the world. But that's my rant. <laughs> uh, I mean, I would fit in the same category as you, Mark, but I give very little, pay little attention to sport. Could not give it a just, toss about it, really. To but, me, I mean, I, I get that it's entertainment, right? But it's not even interesting entertainment. There's much cooler entertainment out there than sports. <laughs> yes, okay. I think it's an unsolvable issue. When you look at, I mean, why we have men's sports and women's sports is that there are physical characteristics that would make it unfair to have just a single competition because the men would generally always win. And so it's it is it is a really difficult thing to to figure out, and I don't think there's any easy solution to it. But I think it's people are worrying about it for an extreme minority of cases. Um, the, the, there are just so few cases of transgender women um, competing, or perhaps I've got that the wrong way around, but non-traditional genders competing in against. Uh, people that they would not normally compete against. And, uh, um, and I don't think it's an easy solution for us. But actually, uh, we we were featured in the documentary that uh, recent controversy that hit our local newspapers, the New Zealand yeah, weightlifter. Right. Yes. Um, she she was shown several times in the documentary. Yeah, it was interesting and, to see and the of, cases. And that of came course, up. yeah, a, a weightlifter is going to play into those kinds of stereotypes, isn't it? That a, a weightlifter is. <laughs> By definition, extremely muscular, and and people would generally consider that to be to be male characteristics, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But you you say it's a hard problem. It's not. I'm telling you, we need to ban all sports. Sports <laughs> okay. should be illegal. 
the problem goes away. Okay, good luck with that. <laughs> that will be the official position of the New Zealand Skeptics. Oh, if it could be, uh, that would be great. I, I know it's an uphill battle in New Zealand with the love for rugby, but I think we can win this one. Very good. Yeah, so I, I guess just to round this this topic off, we do we do have an invitation out to um, an expert in this area that we're we're hopefully going to have as a interviewee on a future podcast. So um, I guess watch this space. And uh, I think it's going to be ten points for the first one of us to uh, accidentally misgender them because it does happen, right? Sometimes this this is a thing that that I'm sure we've all done, um, despite trying hard. It, it's something that does happen. So, yeah, I think 10 points to the first person who accidentally misgenders. How's that? I'm sorry, negative uh, 10 points. Negative 10 points, I think, <laughs> yes. I definitely make an effort to, for it not to be me. Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I, there's two people in my life who, who, who are trans, and I'm sure that had I been more aware when I was younger, <laughs> I would have noticed more people. That's okay. a good point. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you probably don't realize, all of us probably don't realize some of the people in our life who are trans that they actually are trans. So, Mark, what were you going to talk about? I don't know. What do you want me to talk about? So I have um, the Tartarian Empire, which, oh, I yes. don't know, it's, it's a nice topic. I like it. But we can also talk about um, the recent Supreme Court decision with um, uh, Family First, the lovely charity, or we can have a chat about the Weaklink website. And I am am happy with any. The Weaklink website might be hard. It's a bit technical, Mm, and I will will tend towards extreme geekery. Um, Well, now let's let's talk about the Family First, uh, the New Zealand Supreme Court decision. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so, actually, yeah, that's a really good point. As a counterpoint to the first story, our Supreme Court made a really good decision last week, which was finally once and for all to put the final nail in the coffin of Family First as a charity. Now, Family First are a conservative Christian organization who basically lobby that that pretty much seems to be about all they do um they pick topics that they they think new zealand should be going in a certain direction and it's it's conservative directions but a lot of them um and then i'm not sure whether i'd quite call it astroturfing it's not like they're trying to it's not like they make multiple fake organizations and trying to make it look like there's a grassroots, but they do tend to make spin-off organizations where it's sometimes hard to spot the link between this single cause group and family first, but it is family first that's behind them. So some of them are things like um, their say nope to dope campaign for marijuana, which was at the last election when we had a referendum question on the legalization of marijuana. They've got the Love Them Both campaign or group for abortion, and they've got Protect Marriage, which was their anti-gay marriage campaign. Uh, Free to Live is their campaign against the banning of conversion therapy. Ask Me First 
is about gender identity and why we shouldn't have all these scary genders. And it goes on and on and on. And they do a really good job, as I said in my newsletter, of basically making a website that looks professional and putting a decent amount of content in it. They make videos that look like they're good quality. Um, They make sure there are frequent articles that they're keeping abreast of international news and posting those. So they do a really good job of it. And then it takes a bit to spot the family first name on them, but it's always there. And so it's because of this that I think even from just after the group was formed, there have been pressures to deregister them as a charity. So, yeah, there's always been a pressure. And they were first deregistered as a charity by charity services, something like back in 2013. And then they appealed and got reinstated. And then they were immediately deregistered again. And then they took that to the Court of Appeal and they were re-registered again. And then they were deregistered a third time. And they finally they got to the last stop, which is the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically reversed the decision of the Court of Appeal and said, no, these guys really aren't doing anything charitable. They said, basically, the majority of what they're doing is political lobbying. Um, The charitable work is a very minor part of what they're doing. And I think from what I can tell, the registration that they had for charitable work was all around education. And the argument there was from the Supreme Court was that actually they're not educating people by choosing to try and just push a conservative view on the nuclear family being the only way that families should be, that, you know, society's crumbling from uh, from us having these non-traditional family units. Um, and yeah, the, the court obviously, or at least one judge in the Supreme Court was not happy at all with this. Um, so yeah, so I found about this because I sign up to Bob McCroskey's, uh, who's the head of Family First to his newsletter. And I try to read it as regularly as I can just to make my blood boil. Um, and Yeah, there was one email that came out saying we've been deregistered. And then very quickly, I think the next day, there was a second newsletter that tried to spin it in a positive light. And it was interesting to see them do that. They basically tried to talk about how this freed them from the shackles of being a charity, that now the gloves were off, they said, um, because no longer did they have to watch what they were saying. They didn't have to make sure that they were doing charitable stuff. And now they can become the pure lobbying group that they were always going to become their final form. Um, (laughs) and um the publicity thing as well so the other thing they said was that you know there's no such thing as bad publicity and they've seen money rolling in since the decision that you know they're in the news again and and people are stumping up cash for them so it's an interesting one and certainly there's been an interesting history in new zealand with charity so greenpeace got deregistered a while ago, and they successfully argued in court that despite the fact they do a lot of lobbying, that the lobbying was charitable, and so they managed to get reinstated. So, you know, there have been cases like this before, um, but it looks like charity services has just kept on and on and on with Family First. They haven't let it go, and they have pushed it all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, that's good, because I think it's good that they're making sure that the organisations that are charities are actually doing charitable work because otherwise it makes people more suspicious of of charities, I guess, if they can see that Family First, which is clearly doing dodgy stuff. I wonder what practical effect 
this will have on them. And for them not being a charity, that would mean that they would have to start paying tax, I would guess. Yeah, um, so I think it's it's tax on profits at the end of a year, right? But how much that's going to be is probably not much. I imagine practically it doesn't make a huge difference in that way. I, I think one of the good things about being a charity is that it gives people a reassurance. When you're a registered charity, people know that you know the government is keeping an eye on you, that you've managed to cross that bar to show mm-hmm. that you are a charitable organization, that you're doing good works. You have to put in your accounts at the end of every year to charity services, and they're public, so they go up online. Anybody can have a look at them. So there's a certain amount of transparency that comes with it. And sometimes there's an idea that you know maybe some donors – will only give money to registered charities because they like the reassurance of knowing that there's this paperwork that, you know, there, there is kind of a, a bit of comfort there. Um, but honestly, when it comes to someone, a group like family first, I don't think that makes a difference. I don't think people are, are paying because they are uh, giving money to family first. Cause they think the family first are doing great charitable works. I think they're paying money to family first because they have the same conservative views that family first yeah does and they want to see those conservative views basically pushed on all of us um and they're hoping that family first will do this Mm -hmm. so they don't have to do it themselves yeah so um so it's definitely an interesting case i mean the other one that you know is the the other elephant in the room in this country is destiny church right and destiny church has a huge history of being deregistered as a charity they have multiple organizations that have been registered as charities and I would love to have thought that this, again, was charity services doing their work. But more often than not with Destiny, it's just because they forget to fill in their paperwork and they end up getting deregistered because they don't put in their accounts at the end of the year and they get chased up and they still don't do it. And then they get deregistered and then they go and talk to the media and say, oh, how dare charity services deregister us? We're a religion. We should be allowed to be registered charity. And then they get re-registered again. So, um, yeah, I I find it hard to believe that Destiny Church is charitable. But at the same time, of course, in this country, we do have a really, in my opinion, dumb law that being furthering religion is a charitable cause. That basically there are several different reasons why you can register as a charity. And one of them is purely that you are furthering your religious belief. Um, and the idea that that's synonymous with being charitable just does not make sense in my head. Um, you know, a lot of religious groups are doing sod all charitably. They're not helping anyone at all. Um, and they really shouldn't be given this tax break. Uh, surely family were first for just advancing their religious beliefs as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's an interesting thought. I'm not sure whether they were ever registered under the religious clause because you can register under more than one, um, but I don't think they were registered. I, as I said, I think it was the education that they went for. Um, mm. But yeah, maybe if they had just re- registered as a religious group, it would have been a lot easier for them. I don't know. <laughs> yes, I guess I guess there's not much that can be done around uh Destiny Church then because of their religious uh, claims. Yeah, I imagine not. And the government's always being fairly gentle around religion. You know, upsetting the religious base is normally not a good idea politically, as far as these people think who are in power. I'm not sure how true that is. And I think it's becoming less true over time as the number of non-religious in this country rises at 1% every year. And I think that's been happening for like the last 20 to 30 years. It's pretty much 1% 
every year, this slow march of non-belief. Um, so we're at like 49% and next census, we're going to be over 50%. What happens when we go beyond 100 <laughs> I think the census people need to go back and check their maths once we get beyond the hundred. <laughs> but yeah, if the one percent holds, we will eventually get above a hundred percent. And then I don't know. I don't know what happens. There'll be the holdouts. What what's beyond atheism? Is it atheism plus? No. Oh no, that's already been tried, hasn't it? Speaking of atheism plus, uh, Richard Dawkins is going to be back in the country around the same time as uh Franklin Graham. So that's a uh doubleheader i'm interested in seeing play out yeah so franklin graham the son of billy graham who used to run these big rallies around the world yeah so i wrote about that in the intro to my newsletter that bronwyn you and i went and visited parliament yes a week and a half ago for prayers at parliament and wasn't that a fun time oh my i've never been more uncomfortable in my entire life (laughs) (laughs) so in in your newsletter the way you described it it sounds like you actually pretending to be genuinely praying poorly poorly (laughs) yeah so the way the event works basically is um we start with some songs then there's a little intro and then normally it's like two or three different mps and maybe another local dignitary of some kind get up but there are three prayer tracks and so somebody prominent comes up to introduce each prayer track and it's about 10 minutes of an intro talking about the topic. Why are we going to pray about this? What's the problem? What might God be able to do to help? And then the the congregation, which is maybe normally 80 to 100 people, um, we kind of move the chairs into small groups of five or six. So you kind of make a round circle of the people near you. And then for about 10 excruciating minutes, you take turns praying out loud. Um, and I'm I'm not too bad with it. You know, this is my fourth time and I used to be a Christian, so I'm kind of getting used to it. But yeah, I think Bronwyn probably found it a lot more painful than I did. I mean, I'm used to, you know, I also had a Christian upbringing. My dad was Salvation Army. My mom was Catholic and the um, religious compromise they made was this very liberal United Church of Canada. However, I am very used to praying either someone else leading the prayer or I'm reading a psalm, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even when when I was a when I was going to church as a as a teenager, um, there was I don't think there was any point in which I actually had to sort of publicly out loud sort of start making up stuff that was a prayer. <laughs> so, so you just went along with whatever the the um, whatever we called the the leader. <laughs> just sorry, the vicar. That's right, the vicar in my church. So yeah, so for this event, basically we we would have to make up prayers and act like we were Christians. And I've got away with not doing it before, with just being quiet for one or two of the rounds. Um, But I think Alexander, who we've had on the podcast before, who came along with us, I think he got elbowed at one point and told that he really needed to say something, that they, uh, they they were hanging on his prayer, that this was needed to help the country. And so he ended up basically being forced to make up this prayer. Poor guy. And, and presumably you have to pray to the Christian God. Well, he prayed uh, to, he prayed to, um, you know, skeptical ideology was what he prayed to. <laughs> <laughs> he was able to create a nice little um, diver- um, deceptive little prayer where he prayed that people would just learn more about a topic and be open to change their mind. So that was quite <laughs> impressive. Oh, that's and, really they, good. and both times he did the same prayer and people just, he said people nodded in agreement. And, and that sounds like a good idea. Where's that in the Bible? <laughs> Nowhere. 
<laughs> Although no, it's probably somewhere. There's so much in the Bible, you know. Pick a pick a topic and pick a position, and you'll find a few Bible verses that'll back you up, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So it was an interesting evening. Um, I really enjoy them because they're painful. Um, I I get it's not everybody's cup of tea, but for me, like you know, like watching a back to back marathon of The Office. Um, it's just, it gets excruciating, but you survive, you get out the other side and it's all fine and you're all the richer for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so Bronwyn, tell us about some bones. Well, yeah. Um, for this week's newsletter, I wrote about just a thought I've been, that been sort of ruminating on since we had the conference back in, what was it? November, wasn't it? November, 2021. And one of the last presenters was Judy Mellon, Dr. Judy Melanick and her partner, TJ Mitchell. Um, Dr. Melanick is a forensic pathologist and mm-hmm. her husband, TJ is a writer and together they've written several books about forensic pathology to the point when the claim, one of the things that Judy said that she'd want to do with her body is to be able to have some flesh eating beetles, uh, pick off the flesh and articulate the skeleton to have it displayed in a school. (laughs) And it just brought back something from when I was back in Canada doing my first undergraduate degree and being told by an acquaintance, um, yeah, yeah, we don't really, uh, you know, we have to be very careful with the skeletons that we have on display because I was doing a forensic anthropology course at the time and barely handle an actual bone. Um, <laughs> Felt ripped off, ripped off by that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, just what that memory um, led me off to in terms of the research. Um, one thing I didn't get to talk about, and maybe we'll have a chance to have a little debate here. Um, there was a tension that I came across I didn't get to explore. Um, I did link to a spinoff article, which mentioned that in about 2017, a man in Nelson um, was sentenced for stealing skull and crossbones from a local Masonic lodge. And there was a bit of um, hand-wringing and toing and froing by the writer about the appropriateness of fraternal orders like the Masonic lodge keeping human remains. This is not an uncommon practice amongst Fraternal orders, um, the Odd Fellows, um, which are a bit more prominent in the U.S., kept would often keep whole skeletons in coffins, and these human remains would play part of their initiation rituals. However, as more of these fraternal orders are disbanding or their membership is dying off, people are finding these coffins, buying them on eBay, and then opening up and discovering, oh wait, oh there's actually real bones in here. I Hang on a minute. One- Hang on a minute. Just just rewind a second. I need to know what the odd fellows are. I have no idea. <laughs> oh, God. I don't think I have the time to explain, but I will put a link in the um, show notes. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's one. I, I guess you could say they're one of these like, you know, ben, what, how would you say it? Um, great benefactor, bene, uh, friendly societies. They would, you know, you join, everyone puts some money into the kitty and they do good works in the community. Okay, so like the Lions Club or the Buffaloes and Roundtable. To, to the best of my understanding, yeah. But um, but they're a bit weirder if they're keeping bones in coffins, I'm guessing. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's again, it's part of this, these fraternal orders. It's a memento mori, you know, the fact that we will all die. Um, just with the, now we can look back on it with contemporary eyes and be like, so where did those bones come from? Was that, you know, was, was that a former member or was that were those bones um, procured by more nefarious means? You know, were they Native American bones? You don't know. Um, and so, as I said, with this, with, oh, go on. 
I, I just looked up the Odd Fellows, and yes, I had had heard of them before. And um, yes, according to Wikipedia, they started in back in England in 1730. Um, so perhaps when the the term Odd Fellows might not have had the same connotations that it does today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine that any. Uh, a group of men are going to label themselves as odd fellows if they were going to start a new society today, but uh, <laughs> each to their own, I guess. Well, there's all these sort of societies. Like there's a Druid society, and they're not actually Druids. They, it, again, right. it's, a, it's a name that they use as a men's club, and they do some community work in return. And the Satanic Temple are not Satan to, Satanists either, right? Yeah. Right. right. But, you know, but, but in many ways, you know, the club, the clubhouses and the buildings actually still do still exist in cities like Wellington. You know, they're old meeting halls. But going back to this article that was written in the spinoff, um, you know, they quoted Gareth Jones, who was a professor, professor emeritus of anatomy. And they're saying that, you know, hey, you know, even Maori, you know, due to how Maori human remains and bones were traded in colonial, you know, due to colonialism, you know, displaying bones in such a matter would be very offensive to Maori. Um, after I wrote the article, I came across something in stuff from 2016, 2017, around the same time, in which there was a discussion about what amputees want to do with their limbs in New Zealand, which I, again, I wish I had this when I was writing the article. And it's really interesting because Maori men um, are overrepresented in amputation statistics, um, both due to health, you know, so often they're losing their limbs to vascular or diabetes, or, mm -hmm. and then also um, just the kind of work that they do. You know, they're often doing a bit more that laboring. So there is more likely to be those um, significant and substantial workplace accidents. So a high risk places like logging and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that they talk about is how Maori culture has really influenced our human tissue and human tissue policies in which, yes, you can you can have your tissue returned. But within that policy, part of the instructions is what you do with your tissue when you get it returned. So often we think of human tissue. We, we don't think of the bone. We think of maybe at most, um, maybe part of a lung, maybe a finger, maybe an eye, maybe your placenta, which is very common in my field. And the idea is that you take it, you can store it in your freezer for a while, um, but the expectation is that you're going to bury it um, or you will dispose of it in some way. So do you have a legal right to that? Because I, when I was younger, my brother had cancer and I, I missed the leg totally. But a year later, so he had his leg amputated. A year later, he had half a lung taken out. And I did ask if I could have that. And the answer from the hospital was no. I guess maybe because it was riddled with cancer. That might have been why. Um, it depends. It really depends. I had an acquaintance who ended up losing half a lung with, um, due to tumors. And she was able to get hers back. Um, okay, so the com the compromise was that one of the nurses went in with a disposable camera. This was before the days of digital uh, cameras and took me a whole roll of film as they were opening my brother up and removing the lung, which was very cool. Uh, but I mean, I think it's something <laughs> you, that you are just you are just creeping back. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh. at, when I had my tonsillectomy back in 2015, I wanted to see my tonsils. Unfortunately, I had asked after I'd signed my consent forms and I was getting my medication to uh, put me to under and uh, they're like, they were a little, ta little taken aback. So when I was in PACU, which is the post-surgical um, assessment unit, they're like, okay, here's your tonsil. We're going to dispose of it now. And of course, I didn't have my glasses or contact lenses on, so I, I couldn't even see it at all. Um, so, you know, it, that, that sort of interest in what is in you is so normal. Hmm. Um, let's normalize looking at your body parts when they come off. Um, yeah. 
I may be misremembering this, but but I'm sure that I've heard some discussion on an on a US podcast about whether you have the rights to something that's taken out of your body. And at least in the US, it seems that you don't have any right to have whatever they take out of you in surgery um, it can, it can a part vary. of your body. It can vary. Um, I mean, in, in New Zealand, as I said, you do have those rights. Again, the expectation is that you bury them. Um, mm. In the US, it can vary by state. You can buy bones. And that's the thing. There's this massive legal market where you can buy skeleton parts. Um, where they come from is the ethical conundrum. However, there are what's called abuse of corpse laws. And again, funeral homes also have permits where the only place that they can dispose of a, a, a corpse is supposed to be a cemetery you, or Not a crematorium. You can't dispose it anywhere else. So to have a portion of the corpse or the whole entire corpse end up in someone's house for another purpose is no bueno. Caitlin Dohey, who runs the uh, who has who's who runs the YouTube channel. Um, Order of the Good Death. Um, she does talks a lot about the mortician side of things um, because she is a mortician in the U.S. Wrote about it in a book, and she has an article which will also link in the show notes, which discusses um, sort of that nuance in law. However, um, what this article written by Stuff explored is um, again Maori. You know, yes, you know, it's okay to get your tissue and limbs back. You bring it back to your homeland, your 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 home property. And then, you know, you try to keep everything together until you die. However, with amputees, they're finding that, okay, they get their limbs back. But they kind of don't know what to do with them. So often they sort of hang out in the freezer or, you know, eventually they may bury them, you know, as per return of tissue policy, you know, deep enough underground where, you know, the animals can't scavenge it because that, that's kind of tapu, isn't it? You know, that can be a particular issue with if we ever have a body farm in New Zealand, you know heavy animals that can scavenge um, those bodies, but going to just bringing myself to the final point, because I'm rambling a little bit. One of the interviewees buried his limb for about 18 months and then disinterred it. So it's just a bit of bone. So it's, it's just bone and some grizzle keeps it in his house, that's you know, crazy. and that's perfectly legal. <laughs> that's so if you want to, so I don't know, you can't, I don't think you can, you, you can have green burials in New Zealand. Um, but yeah, you cannot bury yourself in your backyard and then someone bury um, disinter your remains in a few months to make you a skeleton, unfortunately. So not the entire thing, but a leg is okay. Well, if it's your leg, if it's if it's your leg, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> so you let's were talking not, about not, not your brothers, Mark. <laughs> you, you were talking about storing this in the freezer. So th this brings me to an important question: Auto cannibalism is it legal in this country? Oh God, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> however, Damn. however, we do. I mean, again, coming from my sphere, um, there was. A small, I should say, home business in the South Island where they would encapsulate placenta. So you take the placenta, dry it out, pulverize it into powder, put it into a capsule form. And the idea as much is that, you know, you sort of help regulate your hormones by re-ingesting the placenta. Oh, actually, maybe that's a good one for you for a, an article for the newsletter you related the people who try to leave the placenta attached to the baby for as long as possible. You, I take it you know of this practice, Bronwyn? Yeah, yeah. I think that would make for a really good article, whether it is a sensible thing or not, because everything I've heard is that it's not and, you know, risk of infection, etc. 
It depends, <laughs> but we also don't see it happen very often. Okay, um, well that's good news. Yeah, I as a vegetarian, I saw my wife giving birth as an opportunity for me to get a bit of meat. Right, I've got three daughters, so there were three chances for me to cook up a placenta, um, and the answer was no. So. Um, <laughs> I missed my opportunity. I, I understand it's an acquired taste there, Mark. <laughs> so just to bring us back to the auto-cannibalism, there yeah. was a case back in 2011, uh, as reported in the New Zealand Herald, where a depressed man cut off his own finger, cooked it, and then ate it with some vegetables. Whoa. So <laughs> I, I know of someone in New Zealand who had to have some skin removed in a medical procedure and he asked the person that removed it, can I have it back and would it be safe for me to cook? And the answer was yes. <laughs> and he fried it up and nibbled on it. See, that's so interesting because I guess if they were just taking the skin off and he was going to take it away right away like that day. Absolutely. However, for a lot of medical procedures, um, if they're taking away tissue for an additional medical or laboratory testing to be done on it, when it returns to you, it's returned in something called formulin. And formulin can be a bit toxic. <laughs> right. So you wouldn't yeah. want to eat, you would not want to saute your um, you know, <laughs> formulin your <weenus>. skin. <laughs> um, and it wasn't me. Uh, so what what meetups are coming up? So um, um, the skeptical activism in the pub is happening on Thursday evening from six o'clock at the Fork and Brewer. And next week on Friday, which would be the 15th, is our regular Skeptics in the Pub in the bar at the bottom of the Intercontinental. And I just have to say that for we've had a few visitors now at various weeks who've been listening to the podcast and have come along to say hello at Skeptics in the Pub. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you all, either for the first time or again. Please please keep visiting. Feel free to come and say hello. Um, and as Bronwyn says, I think you've said before, Bronwyn, they should come and watch us eat and drink, but I think yeah. they can also partake themselves if they like. But yeah, I missed, and I think Bronwyn, did you miss as well the incident last week with the homeless man joining uh, Skeptics in the pub? I came just as, as it was heating up. <laughs> <laughs> I got um, there at quarter past six, 15 minutes late, and I missed the entire homeless man thing. Very disappointed. Well, I mean, whether <laughs> Mark, he was homeless. Mark, Mark, I had to pull you up here. This is a person experiencing homelessness, not a homeless man. Okay. It is a, oh, I, okay. I will remember that one. Thank you. Um, oh. It was, and it sounded like it was mental health, maybe. Um, but yeah, he also, he did a very clever trick of ordering a drink with uh, no intention of paying for it. <laughs> and then asking around the table, which other skeptic was going to pay for his drink for him. Who's round is it? <laughs> and thankfully, James Kerr and Alexander Maxwell, who you've heard multiple times on this podcast, managed the situation and were able to um, get it under control. So kudos to them. Thank you very much, lads. Did he have anything good to say, though? Um, <laughs> I don't think he was skeptically minded, no. No. Um, <laughs> But yes, so back to the original point. Thank you for everybody that's visited. And if you're able to pop in again, we would love to see you again. I think we, what time did you leave Bromwyn? I think we were there until like half 10, 11 yeah, in that, the end. No, it was actually kind of a bumper crop. Um, Josh, one of our long-term skeptics members, probably hauled in about 
three other people from Dunedin because they're in for a conference. And then we had um, a long a listener who came in from Auckland. So, so really they cool. they'd been to the um, Kauai Con. Is that it? Was it yeah. So it's the spinoff from um, what's the local hacker con KiwiCon. So KiwiCon kind of grew so big that it became hard to organize. And so they did like a spin-off smaller one that I think they plan to run some years. Mm. So a little hacker conference. Haven't been to one yet myself, but I really do need to go. Um, they seem like a lot of fun for geeks like me. Sounds good. I am going to be intrigued by what the images for this um, podcast episode, considering the, the topics that we've covered. I just have to ask that it's not a finger. <laughs> I think meat frying in a pan or a leg half sticking out of the ground, maybe. I, I think I'm going to let someone else choose the image this week. It will not oh, be no. me again. No, that's your job, Bronwyn. You choose the image. I write the show notes. You <sighs> complain about the resolution of the photos I pick. I do, because it needs to be 1400 by 1400, not 1400 by 1810, <laughs> and not 600 by 700. 1400 by 1400. That's all I'm just, Apple I'm accepts. Just, I'm, just, I'm just delegating expertise where it, where it lies. <laughs> all right. I'll get the image for this week. <laughs> All right. You have been listening to the Yena podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can come and talk to us on Twitter at Yena Pod or send us an email to news at skeptics.nz. Talk to you all soon. Bye. See you later. Bye. <laughs>